Good morning and welcome to Behind the Headlines, the Friday morning Utah News Roundup from KCPW and the Salt Lake Tribune, heard around the state on Utah Public Radio. I'm Roger McDonough. Today on the show, how state leaders tried to help a Draper pharmacist import hydroxychloroquine, even as experts warned that the drug wasn't useful in treating COVID-19. Multiple women accused the communications head for the Salt Lake County Republican Party of harassment leading to the resignation of the chair of the county's GOP, and what looks to some like a power grab in Utah County as commissioners there wrest control of the $100 million budget away from the independently elected county clerk. Joining me for this conversation uh, via Zoom today, we've got Salt Lake Tribune reporter Leah Larson. Uh, Leah, good morning and welcome to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Reporter Bethany Rogers is with us as well. Welcome, Bethany. Thanks to you. Thanks, Roger. And Tribune News columnist Robert Gerke. Hi, Robert. Welcome. Hey, good morning, Roger. Listeners, you can join this discussion with your questions or comments by tweeting to at KCPW, or you can call us. Uh, the number is 801-355-TALK. That's 801-355-8255. Uh, an eventful week, um, and let's start with the story of uh, hydroxychloroquine. Bethany, there's a, a pharmacist who decided to import a bunch of this malaria drug uh, early on in the pandemic. Uh, this was when hydroxychloroquine was being touted as a, a kind of miracle drug by then-President Donald Trump. This pharmacist is um, is in some trouble, though, and maybe we can start with, with that. Dan Richards of the Draper-based Meds in Motion Pharmacy. Uh, just before we dive into the latest, he's he's pleaded guilty to some charges related to his importing of this drug. Can you remind us that part of the story before we uh, proceed further? Yeah, in January, Dan Richards was um, charged in federal court with um, importing, um, illegally importing the drugs. So they the charges were that he um, misbranded. 500 kilograms of hydroxychloroquine and 50 kilograms of chloroquine. So those are very um, two very similar drugs. And he had been um, planning on sort of combining them um, and mixing them up and using them for this potential, you know, COVID-19 treatment. So the charge was basically that instead of importing them the right way and, and properly labeling them, that he had mislabeled them as Boswellia, which is an herbal supplement. Um, which um, I've learned he may have done because herbal supplements are regulated um, much less strictly at the border than um, than than pharmaceuticals. Right, Bethany. The, the idea here is that this makes it easier to to import, um, and and that that was the purpose behind this false labeling. Um, that comes out of a conversation I, I, you have had with his defense attorney, correct? Yeah, that's right. He acknowledged that basically the. The reason for this mislabeling was to sort of expedite and get these drugs in. His defense attorney says, you know, in, in his mind, in the pharmacist's mind, and in the minds of some, you know, high-ranking state officials, this was going to be some kind of miracle cure, and it, they were going to save lives. And you know, um, Senate President Stuart Adams said, even said, save the world. They had this idea that they were going to save the world with this drug. So um, the fact that you know he he. Uh, mislabeled this, you know, his defense attorney said, you know, kind of goes to the, the pressure that he was feeling to sort of bring it in and help people who were suffering as the pandemic was was um, 
was getting worse here in Utah. Okay, defense attorney saying he's getting pressure from the state to get it in quickly. Let's let's get to the latest here. Um, some emails that the the Tribune that you got a hold of um, showed that Richards reached out to state leaders at one point um, and, and to people in high places to try and get help with his efforts to import this drug. Can you talk about that, Bethany? Yeah. So all along, um, Richards' defense attorney has been saying that, you know, his client um, did this, his client, you know, quickly pleaded guilty um, to this mislabeling charge. But the defense was kind of that he was not doing it alone, that, um, you know, he's kind of the one who's taken the fall for something that a lot of people, um, including officials and state government, were a part of. Um, so we wanted to figure out what that meant and exactly what role um, state leaders have this import process. So um, some of the email records that we received in response showed that um, that there was a shipment of drugs that was having trouble in the San Diego port. He was shipping um, this medication over from China. And so it was entering the country in San Diego and he was concerned about an FDA hold on the drugs. Um, And at that point in time, he reached out to two people, um, at least two people. One of them was Senate President Adams, who was at the time a a big proponent of hydroxychloroquine's promise as a potential um, treatment for Mm COVID-19. And the other one was um, General Jefferson Burton, who at that point in time was um, heading up the Utah Department of Health's coronavirus response. Um, and he basically said, these drugs are delayed. They're sitting in the port. And we, I really need some help from you guys. I'm hoping you guys can use your pull to get this through customs and, and get it to Utah. Hmm. Bethany, was um, the, the shipment that was stuck in San Diego or, you know, that I, and there was a, apparently an FDA hold that was put on the shipment. Was that particular shipment mislabeled as, um, you know, as as that Boswellia extract or whatever? So um, Richard's defense attorney says no, that that was not the shipment, one of the shipments that was mislabeled. Um, and Richard's pleaded guilty to mislabeling a, the separate shipment, the smaller shipment of 50 kilograms of chloroquine. I do think it's important to note, though, that Richard's was originally charged both with falsely importing that smaller shipment and the larger 500 kilogram shipment, which is the one that he um, he requested help uh, to move through customs. So he didn't plead guilty to that one. The defense attorney says that one was imported legally, but he was he was originally charged with illegally importing the shipment that he requested help to get through customs. Okay. Um, you know, as we said, there's this point at which the the president of the United States, uh, President Trump, is is touting this drug. Um, and there were then, after that, there were some, um, you know, scientific studies that came out that showed that actually this wasn't at all a miracle drug, a miracle cure to COVID-19. Where does Richards reaching out to Senate President Stuart Adams uh, and then getting some help? Um, we haven't yet, I don't think, mentioned uh, help coming from the director, the executive director of the Utah Inland Port, Jack Hedge. Um, but maybe you could talk about that. And then where does where does you know his reaching out for help on the the stalled shipment um, fall in that timeline of what we knew about hydroxychloroquine, Bethany? 
Um, so concerns about um, hydrox hydroxychloroquine had already come up. And in fact, um, there had been some discussion of issuing a standing order in Utah that would have allowed um, people to distribute uh, hydroxychloroquine without a prescription. And that um, effort had kind of had kind of died with opposition from medical experts by that point. Um, President Trump had in, I would say, mid-March, you know, early March, maybe begun, you know, talking about hydroxychloroquine and touting it. So it was definitely already something that had um, become somewhat politicized. Um, and, you know, to, to the point about Jack Hedge. So after yeah. um, Dan Richards sent out that email asking for help, what we know, you know, the records that we got back did not show any direct response to him, to Dan Richards saying, oh, yeah, we'll help you. But apparently what happened after that is that the Senate president um, got in touch with Jack Hedge, who's the executive director of the um, Utah Inland Port Authority and who has, you know, experience in, in you know, in importing um, knows right. sort of the process um, and ask Jack Hedge to sort of help out Dan Richards and he connects the two of them. So Jack Hedge, you know, acknowledges he got in touch with Dan Richards at, um, president Adams, um, request. And then Jack Hedge sort of facilitates, you know, some introductions with Dan Richards with some people, some customs brokers that he knows who are apparently very skilled at getting shipments, um, through the process. And I have, I want to note, you know, mm -hmm. people say Jack Hedge and, and other experts that I've talked to say that this is a very complicated process, that a holdup isn't necessarily unusual. It doesn't necessarily signify that there's something, you know, illegal or wrong with the shipment, but that it's just a very complex and bureaucratic, um, process. And that, you know, most people going through it really need the help of experts and brokers and stuff like that to sort of know how to how to check all the boxes and get things through. Um, so after that, the customs brokers um, say that they didn't have too much to do with um, Dan Richards. They, you know, asked for some information. They say that he never really got back to them. Um, but Greg Scordas, who is um, Dan Richards' defense attorney, says well, we didn't get the drugs here. Apparently the, um, the drugs eventually did make their way out of that hold. And, you know, the defense attorney says that wasn't because of us. We don't know how that happened. We think that, you know, it was one of the people, um, at the state who kind of made that happen in some way. So the defense attorney is saying that the, that the shipment got unstuck because of the efforts of state leaders, um, or the head of the Utah Inland Port and the well, or the the people who were facilitating this, I guess. Um, but he he wants to portray it that way, I would assume, because that would serve as a kind of defense for his client, correct? That is that's the argument of Senate President Adams. Um, okay. He's contended that um, you know Dan Richards all along has kind of you know, name dropped throughout this process. I remember talking to Dan Richards very early on in, I think it was early April, um, before this hydroxychloroquine thing had really blown up. And, you know, he was telling me that he was working very closely with president Adams 
and some high ranking officials on doing this. And um, so, you know, the Senate president's argument is I had really minimal involvement here. And this is just yet another example of Dan Richards trying to use people in high places to sort of you know, get what he wants, defend himself. So, so the Senate president trying to distance himself from, you know, pretty significantly from uh, from Richards, who he had, you know, stood side by side with at a press conference, uh, talking about um, about maybe the potential benefits of hydroxychloroquine. I'm not certain if that's what the press conference was about. I mean, there was a time, I guess, Bethany, when state leaders were very much on board with this plan. They there was a contract between. Meds in Motion and the state, and so Meds in Motion was doing the importing they were doing at the behest of the state. Correct? Yeah. Well, um, I don't know if I don't know if I would say it was at the behest of the state, but it was definitely in collaboration oh. with the state. There were, you know, plans to distribute these drugs. I think that Dan Richards had kind of gotten the ball rolling on ordering the drugs from China before you know the plans with the state had really come together. But it was definitely, you know. It was all tied together. And you're right. I mean, state officials at one point were extremely excited about this drug. The press conference was definitely promoting its um, promise. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, they were thinking of issuing a standing order that would allow people to get it without a prescription. So there was definitely a lot of interest. And I I would also want to say that, you know, it wasn't just Dan Richards who was going around saying that um, the Senate president was interested in these drugs and who was working with um, with Dan Richards in the pharmacy. There's emails, you know, also from within the state. I, you know, there's even one an email I can recall from um, Jefferson Burton, General Burton, with the Department of Health, saying, you know, the Senate president is working with Dan Richards to procure these drugs. So. Um, now that you know this has become extremely controversial and the deal collapsed and it's turned out that the drug really wasn't this miracle miracle cure that was being hoped for you know everybody has been kind of trying to distance themselves from this deal and and say that you know they didn't really have much to do with it but yes there was a lot of interest within the state Hmm. towards the beginning um, and, and then as you said the the deal fell apart the governor eventually governor gary herbert um Canceled the contract that the state had with uh, Meds in Motion on this, or, or, or basically, you know, requested a refund. Um, we can get to that. In fact, Bethany, hang on just a minute because I want to bring in uh, the news columnist on this story, um, and then we'll come back to you, uh, Robert Gerke. This story is about you know a deal that went awry. Um, there are various pieces to it. What, what about the involvement of? You know, state leaders trying to help with the shipment that got stuck. Um, does, is that is there anything sort of nefarious there? What do you, what do you make of this? Well, I, I don't know if it's nefarious necessarily. I think we had kind of had an indication or an idea, and Bethany was able to ferret this out that the state leaders were certainly supportive and and involved in in this. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of interesting because I don't know that Dan Rogers has a. a motive to lie at this point about, you know, about the help he got. It seems like it's been, I mean, he's got to cooperate with federal uh, investigators, I guess, or the feds, but he's, you know, he's made his plea. And so um, I'm not sure that there's an incentive for him to lie, but it's, um, it's not terribly surprising that, you know, and as, as Bethany mentioned, President Adams was at the press conference where they were touting this as a cure. I think they, you know, it kind of shows the problems that you run into when when the politicians get involved, uh, you know, get a, get out ahead of the science and and 
are trying to do things that are not scientifically valid or provable. So it's, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, I think, I think Bethany's done terrific work in, in unraveling this. Um, and I guess we'll, we'll see if there's any documentation that backs up the Dan's claim about, uh, about state involvement. Um, and Bethany, we'll come back to you now. Uh, the what's what's actually happening with Dan Richards from from Meds in Motion at this point? I mean, he's has he been sentenced for the uh, sentenced for the for the mislabeled you know imports the the sort of fraudulently portraying one <laughs> import as something other than what it is. No, he hasn't. He he's pleaded guilty to the one charge, and then his sentencing is scheduled for mid-April. I think that he's facing up to a few years in prison. Um, a few years in prison, and uh, I guess I, <laughs> and this is again because of the mislabeling. There, there's no indication that that um, state leaders were you know on board with anything like mislabeling the drugs, right? No, the um, even even Dan Richards' own defense attorney doesn't take it that far. He says, you know, nobody told Dan Richards to do anything illegal. Nobody really knew that he was doing anything illegal. But what he said is, you know, I don't think they were very surprised either to find out about this because there are a number of indications, you know, in, in other parts of this show that, you know, they were trying to find workarounds. This is not the normal process for getting a drug, hmm. you know, um, procuring a drug. So, you know, Greg Scordas, the defense attorney, says everyone kind of understood that this was not the normal process, that he wasn't going through the normal channels, and that he might be trying to find workarounds. Well, non-normal channels, including reaching out to people who connected him with customs agents and then, you know, got that apparently or seemingly got that um, shipment unstuck. Bethany, anything we need to add to your uh, your great reporting? This is kudos on securing these emails, by the way. Um, anything you want to add to the story before we head to our first break in the show? No, I think we've we've covered all the highlights. Okay. Um, that is Bethany Rogers, uh, who is a government reporter with Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, we need to head to our first break. And when we come back, we will turn to the fallout from the accusations levied against the communications director for the Salt Lake County Republican Party. You are listening to Behind the Headlines on KCPW and Utah Public Radio. We'll be back in just a minute. Terry Malloy has never felt more alone. Pop said Johnny Friendly used to own you. No wonder everybody calls you a bum. What do you want from me? More! More! Jeffrey Donovan, Hector Elizondo, and Rebecca Pigeon star in On the Waterfront by Bud Schulberg. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. This week in This American Life, Derek joined the military to be a soldier, and right away that's what he got. He was jumping out of airplanes, he was digging foxholes, you know, army stuff. And one day, he got a new assignment. They told him... You wouldn't have to do any field duty, but you would have to sing and dance. Amateurs, people doing things they are not trained to do, this week. Saturday morning at 10 on UPR.
Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. I'm Roger McDonough, and I am joined by Salt Lake Tribune reporters Leah Larson and Bethany Rogers, and by news columnist Robert Gerke. It is our live Friday morning Utah News Review, and you can join us with your questions and comments by calling 801-355-8255. You can also tweet to us. Our handle is at KCPW. Leah Larson, we are going to go to you now. You reported this week on accusations that a number of women have levied against uh, someone who works for the Salt Lake County Republican Party, um, who works for but isn't exactly employed by the party, and we can get to that. Um, yeah, you know, what kinds of al- accusations are we talking about, and, and who is the subject of those allegations, Leah? Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I had a, seven women come forward to me with um, accusations of uh, what I would call bullying, harassment, um, withholding campaign resources, unless these women, um, campaigned on pet issues. Hmm. And the, the person, um, that was kind of, uh, leading all this was, uh, Dave Robinson, who is the County or was the County party's communications director. Yeah. You describe your article describes, you know, harassment, body shaming, as you said, withholding resources, other inappropriate behavior. Um, you you recount allegations described by various women who were running for office or who were otherwise connected to the uh, Republican Party in in Salt Lake County. I, I don't know what to highlight here. There are a lot of of bullying statements described by various women. Um, a Salt Lake County Council candidate, a former candidate for county recorder, a legislative candidate, a congressional primary candidate, uh, a party insider. Can you, would you mind highlighting one or two specific examples here, Leah, of the kinds of um, bullying that they allege happened? Sure. And um, before I do that, I just want to say that I was able to confirm Mm -hmm. these allegations either through emails, through text messages, through admissions from Robinson or Chair uh, Scott Miller themselves or witnesses. Okay. Um, but uh, I think some of the highlights, I mean, there's language that we couldn't print and I definitely can't say on radio. <laughs> right. But uh, I think one example that we kind of led with in the story was Laurie Stringham, who's uh, who was running for county council um, in the middle of her campaign. She produced her own video, just kind of like a fun video, making fun of the county budget. And uh, when it went live and went out to donors, Robinson called her and threatened to take away, um, according to her, threatened to take away her campaign resources to destroy her campaign, to make sure the party would never work with her again. Um, He accused her of, uh, well, he used a a really not nice word. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, just kind of like that. It, it really left her shaken up and and, and disturbed and uh, afraid. And this is just one example, and there there are various others um, of people coming forward. And, and did they all? I mean, you know, maybe just to sort of do an actual behind the headlines. You know, what how how you did some of the reporting that you did, Leah? Was it was it that you were aware of this story? I don't know if you can talk about this actually um, uh, to the extent that you can, though. Um, so feel free not to answer this, but I'm, I'm interested in that behind the scenes side of this. Uh, how did this story actually come to you, Leah Larson? Um, that is a good question. So I, I had covered some of these campaigns and elections, um, and I think some of these women felt like I had done a fair job um, telling their stories. And um, 
one of them came to me and told me uh, some things Robinson had said that, you know, he had killed some stories I was working on, which is not true. I mean, nobody, nobody can kill a story we're working on. Hmm. Um, and I think just uh, maybe acknowledging that, 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 that wasn't true was maybe a little reassuring to some of these women that they had been lied to or maybe manipulated. So they started talking to me a little more. It's there. The again, the, we're not. I don't know if we're doing justice to the the kind of um, statements that are being made to these women. Um, Robinson, who who is, and as I said, he's not exactly an employee of the Salt Lake County Republican Party. He is almost a, a de facto communications head. Uh, maybe you can describe that. But at one point in an interview with the Tribune, he talked about. Um, I mean, there was a two and a half hour, I think, interview with, that the Tribune had with with him and with the Salt Lake County Republican chair, uh, Scott Miller, um, and he describes uh, Robinson. That is um, the comments that he made to these women having to do something with his family's ranching history. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, that was an intense interview. He he, when I asked him if he. Um, you know, was critical about women's appearances and their bodies. He, he, he said that, uh, you know, he has a family background in ranching and he's used to being very critical about horses and livestock. And I, I, I don't have an explanation for that other than what he said. Okay. Um, yeah. So th- there's, this is a, again, this interview that both Robinson and the head of the Salt Lake County Republican party, Scott Miller had, um, with the tribune after that interview, I understand from your article, uh, Leah Miller, the, the chair of the Republican party sent out an email to officials in the County party. Um, and that email drew some rebukes. Uh, c- can you tell us what that email said? Yes. So this was a day after our interview with them where we gave them the chance to, you know, review the allegations and respond to them. And I believe they were just trying to get ahead of the Salt Lake Tribune story. So they issued uh, an email from the county party um, email address with the official logo and everything, naming all these women, discounting their claims, um, just being dismissive. Uh, and then that drew, drew some rebuke all the way up to the governor's office and the lieutenant lieutenant governor's office. So, um, and then, yeah, and and that's a variety of people saying this isn't. Um... Anyway, so as as these allegations are occurring, uh, Leah Robinson then reaches out to a number of these same women um, who are making who are saying what they're saying or who are bringing the story to you. Um, and in in the way that Robinson reaches out to them, there's kind of some implicit um, threats about about backlash for this. Can you can you talk about that? Uh, implicit threats about backlash. Well, so Robinson reaches out to the to the same women who are bringing these allegations to uh, to you, and my understanding is that in messages to them, he says, you know, um, uh, something along the lines of, you know. Ruining families. Um, All right. Yeah. Can you can you explain that? Yeah. So I he must have gotten wind that they were talking to the press um, because he started sending emails calling them like the mean girls and you know alluding to some lawsuit where he had cost somebody who made allegations about him millions of dollars and destroyed their families and and what appeared to be a, an attempt to um, uh, keep them from coming forward or get them to stop talking. Hmm. Um, you know, we haven't really gotten to this, but uh, 
but um, the fact that that Scott Miller, who was the chair of the um, of the Republican Party, uh, who was serving as chair of the county Republican Party at the time, he was made aware of these allegations of these complaints against Robinson, not by your story, but he had been made aware of, of various allegations for quite some time, right? Yes. Um, I, I've seen emails and text messages where women were bringing concerns forward and asking for help, um, asking for someone to intervene and get him to leave them alone. Um, when I asked him about this, he said he considered it normal part, a normal part of campaigning. He was dismissive. Um, I would say he was dismissive up until our story came out. Hmm. Um, and now uh, he has resigned. I mean, when did that happen and, and how did that happen? Yeah, so that was interesting. So he came out with this email ahead of our story, um, kind of attacking women and, and calling them out by name and trying to discredit them. Then our story came out and he comes out with another email saying he takes harassment seriously and that people should come forward. Um, and then I think it was less than 24 hours after our story, he resigned. He sent another email resigning from the county party. However, he is still running for state chair. So um, he's still seeking higher office. Hmm. I understand also that he first, you know, you mentioned that that he tried to do some damage control to say that he would now take these allegations seriously. That was just before he ended up deciding to resign. Um, and and after, you know, this email that you, you bring up that he, you know, where in which he names all the women and says that he's being, quote unquote, canceled. Um, Leah, you know, I'm going to put you on hold for just a moment and bring in the news columnist for some opinion commentary. Um and actually, you know, before we unleash unleash the Gherky, uh, can, can I ask, you know, what what sort of I'm, we've, we're leaving out a number of, of details that are that I encourage listeners to go and check out in your story. But are there big strokes from the story that we are um, uh, that we're missing right now before I bring in Gherky? Um, I just think the the tone that, that he used for these women, I mean, it, it was pretty disturbing uh, the, the things he would call them and the ways he would describe their bodies. Um, uh, Amy Winter Newton, a county councilwoman, tried to come forward and help defend these women and get somebody to take action. And he kind of doubled down and started attacking her, making weird allegations about her own sexuality and giving her these these weird nicknames like Amy Edaberger. Um, so. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well. Well. And again, there are. It, it's hard. Your article is actually hard to read because of some of the the bullying comments. Um. And and not not difficult in a way that you know the the story is very compelling. It's just the the the, the comments themselves are, are difficult. Um. Robert Gerke, let's bring you in on this. Um. Yeah. Some troubling stories of of bullying and and even abusive behavior here. Uh, I know you wrote a column about this. Um. Why did this happen, and and why wasn't anything done about it earlier? Well, I think I think that second question is is the important one here because um, Dave Robinson has a history of of shooting his mouth off, um, and in in this instance, he was you know directing it at some of these uh, candidates for office and making offensive and disparaging comments. I think the second layer to this is that. These these women started uh, approaching the party chairman back in July and August and September and October and November and December before they, you know, they tried to handle this through the party channels uh, before talking to Leah and were getting nowhere. I mean, they were getting stonewalled by Scott Miller 
who was defending Robinson and defending it. Oh, that's just Dave, you know? And, and so, you know, it, it was no surprise. And then the third layer of this is that there were other party officials who knew about this as well, who they approached after, uh, after they were not getting any uh, satisfaction with, you know, trying to take this through normal channels. They approached the, you know, executive committee members. They approached uh, Richard Snellgrove, a councilman for Salt Lake County. They approached the vice chair who was, you know, aware of, of these allegations and these problems that Robinson was having. Yeah. And so, you know, there are all these layers and nobody did anything until, until Amy Winder Newton got involved and, and Leah got involved to their credit and, and made this, uh, made this, an issue and it's unfortunate i mean i think the real problem you have to you have to look at is you know I, I, as i said in the column we talk a lot about how important it is for women to be involved in in leadership in whether that's in business or in politics and you can't really expect women to get involved in leadership if they encounter a hostile environment like this and then the people who, who are the, the structures that are supposed to be there to prevent this completely break down and so you've got this situation in salt lake county where where that's exactly what happened and it, to the detriment i think of the party so i think the party the party the county party is going to have a lot of cleanup to do it's got to get its house in order and make this right um, and I think it's got to really assess where things went off the rails and why they failed to, you know, to stand up for these candidates and, and allow this to, to be perpetuated. And, and I think, you know, it also puts uh, Scott Miller's record in the in, you know, in the crosshairs uh, as he's running for state party chairman. I think that state delegates need to take this into consideration and, and repudiate his complete lack of leadership and his failure to stand up for his candidates. It's interesting, the you know that it takes um, again. There's those internal complaints, and and many of them, and then and not a lot happening. I mean, nothing happening until a story comes out in the press. And of course, this is uh, maybe Leah. I don't. You can't comment on this, but there's um, there's this story of Republican women in one specific. Um, place where this is happening you know there's of course this isn't just a, a, a party problem or you know it's sort of a societal wide problem I guess is what I'm po pointing at um, <laughs> Leah Larson I don't know where to go with this I'm the Salt Lake County Republican Party I mean Gerke talked about the fact that they have to you know put their house in order they are I know forming an ethics advisory committee over this to try and um, come to terms maybe I guess with what happened yes um, and and I think you make a good point because this story also um, resurfaced allegations in the Democratic Party, the state Democratic Party, right. where women were harassed and mistreated and nothing was really done about it. Um, so um, the Democratic Party, years after the fact, um, issued an apology. So, you know, I, I right. Just, yes, just yesterday, I think. Right. Or the day before, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so, I, you know, I think, you know. Utah has a problem with, you know, not enough women in leadership roles and running for office. And um, I guess, you know, it's time for a reckoning. How about, um, you know, we talked about the fact that uh, Scott Miller resigned. Um, what's going on with 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 Dave Robinson, who was, you know, the, the sort of, again, he wasn't exactly a paid employee for the Salt Lake County Republican Party, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so does he does he is he still in that role? What's what's going on there? Um, I think, you know, I'm not sure, uh, he works with Scott. He, um, he continues to send emails discrediting these women, um, to, to party members. Um, so I, I'm not really sure what his role is. I think that's unclear, but. 
if I could real quick, Roger, I mean, Dave was brought into the party. Scott brought Dave into the party because Dave was volunteering. Um, and, and Scott protected Dave and defended Dave for, you know, as Leah's story noted back in 20, was that 2018, where he said that, you know, gay teens are killing themselves because they're having way too much sex and it's basically destroying their lives. And, and, and that was a pretty controversial statement at the time, but Scott stood up to, uh, for Dave in that situation as well. Um, you know, so this isn't the first instance I think. Um, but yeah, Dave, Dave was Scott's, um, Scott's guy. And, and so I think now that Scott's gone, I, fair to say that Dave's not going to be associated with the party anymore either. Hmm. And Dave was doing this by the way, because he has other interests that are, that he's involved in. And Leah touched on in her story, um, how Dave kept trying to insert his own interests into these political campaigns and use these campaigns to advance his own agenda. Right. Leah, we didn't talk about the the pet issues that, um, that he, you know, requested uh, candidates, sometimes write op-eds about or, um, you know, put on their campaign websites. Do you want to, just before we head to our next break in the show, because we do have to do that pretty <laughs> soon, um, talk about that aspect of this story. It's kind of going back in time, but it's a, you know, it's overshadowed, I think, by the abusive um, comments. But uh, yeah, what about that? Yeah. So, so he seems to have a lot of interest in the Cottonwood Canyons. Um, so we try to get um, these women to campaign on that. He also um, attached himself to this HOA lawsuit where he alleged discrimination because he's gay. Um, a judge did dismiss that counterclaim uh, this month or last month. Sorry. Um, so yeah, just issues like that. These women really weren't comfortable. They didn't really see a link to their campaign and like their ideas. Um, but he would put the pressure on them pretty heavily to, to campaign on them. Um, that is Leah Larson, uh, who is a government reporter with the Salt Lake Tribune. And uh, Leah, thank you very much for your reporting on this. There is, um, and I encourage listener, listeners to go check it out at sltrip.com, by the way. Lots of uh, really interesting details in that story. More to come on the show, including a budgetary power grab in Utah County, or at least that's how some people see it. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Headlines on KCPW and Utah Public Radio, featuring journalism from the pages of the Salt Lake Tribune. We'll be right back. 45 million Americans owe an average of $37,000 each in student loans. Should America forgive this student debt? Canceling student debt will put tens of billions of dollars back into the economy over the next decade. We should live in a society where people with means pay their way. America's student loan debt crisis. That's next time on Intelligence Squared U.S. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, it's Francis Lamb. Nothing says spring like seeds. And this week, we talked to Chef Dan Barber, who's been rethinking them. Imagine a squash that turns orange when ripe, a habanero with no heat, or cucumbers whose fragrance you can smell from across the room. That's The Splendid Table from APM American Public Media. Tune in Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. I'm Roger McDonough, and I am joined by the Salt Lake Tribune's Leah Larson, Bethany Rogers, and Robert Gerke. This is our Friday morning local news roundup. Again, you can join us with your questions and comments by calling 801-355-TALK 
or tweeting to us at uh, our handle is at KCPW. And um, we'll go from Salt Lake County to Utah County, where a vote on a measure that was uh, buried in a meeting agenda will have some pretty significant impacts for the business of the county, and in particular, who oversees the county's budget. Uh, Bethany Rogers, what was this vote about, and um, yeah, and why did it happen? Um, the vote was to relocate um, the budget office, the county's budget office, which um, has up to now been inside of the clerk auditor's office. Um, and so the Utah County Commission suddenly revealed that they intended to move those employees over so that they directly reported to the commission or to them. Um, and the reason they said they were doing that was because they felt they were um, struggling to get information from the budget office. So, um, you know, they have an interest in repealing the 2019 tax increases. And so they've said they wanted to, you know, they've been asking for a lot of information that would help them sort of plan for that, for the reduction in, in county revenues and to try to figure out under various scenarios what would happen if they reduce taxes by this much or that much or that much. And they're saying that, you know, they haven't gotten what they were looking for from um, the budget office since they want these employees to be directly answerable to them so that, you know, they say it will it will streamline the um, information sharing. Um, I guess, okay, so streamline information sharing, but I'm wondering um, what the implications are. You know, it gives it gives the commission, I guess, the Utah County Commission, um, you know, more, a great deal more power over the budget. And then, yeah, what happens to the, um, to the, the clerk's office, the clerk and auditor's office that uh, used to have uh, a great deal of control over the budget? So there are three employees um, that would be that are going to be moved over now that this has passed. Um, and um, so most counties, most local governments here um, in Utah and, you know, just generally in governments divide up um, their budgeting functions between different parts of government just to reduce the potential for, you know, fraud or misconduct or, you know, whatever, just to make sure that there's some accountability and oversight. So, yeah. you know, in the federal government, you know, the executive branch sort of manages the budget and spending, but the legislative branch in Congress, they're the ones who pass the budget. And it sort of works the same way at the state level, you know, and, you know, at, at the city level in Salt Lake City, you know, that's kind of the same way that it works. But in a government like Utah County, where there's a commission, the um, executive branch and legislative branch are both both reside in the commission. So they represent both branches. So the, the way they kind of um, create this accountability is by having the independently elected clerk auditor oversee sort of the day-to-day -day management of the budget, while the commission is the one that sort of passes the budget. So they, they divide up those responsibilities. And so now the concern is just all of those, those responsibilities and duties will be under the, um, you know, the supervision and oversight of the commission, which is right now, you know, reduced down to only two people hmm. and that that's an inappropriate consolidation of power in the hands of very few. How much money are we talking about? I know that the, you know, that Utah's Lieutenant Governor, um, uh, called this action insane um, because you know she she drew attention to this vote and and what it did. But uh, how much money will these two people be in charge of? 
So um, the general fund budget, just the, the regular county budget um, for this last year was a little bit over $100 million. But um, if you include all of the various different accounts and other you know, special funds and budgets that the, um, the county deals with, that total goes up to more than $500 million. So um, yeah, you, you referenced the Lieutenant Governor in a Facebook post um, talking about this vote, she was basically, you know, saying that this is just an inappropriate move that it, it would um, it would reduce accountability. And, you know, she wrote that right now with, you know, the commission only being made up of two people, she says this means that essentially two people will be in charge of proposing voting on and executing a half a billion dollar budget. And like you said, she calls that an insane change. Um, and she just uh, to clarify, I mean, she also has connections to Utah County um, historically, right? Yeah, she was a state senator representing parts of Utah. She's from um, Spanish Fork and representing um, Utah County for um, uh, about seven or eight years, I think, in the state Senate. So that's where she's from. What do the what what is the justification given again? I mean, you you mentioned it, it, it sort of streamlining things. Um, uh, the, the two commissioners are giving for this move. Um, can, can you just remind us that justification, and then we can get to the clerk auditor's comments on it as well. Yeah, they were just kind of accusing the clerk auditor's office of um, withholding information from them or not giving it to them as quickly as they would want. Um, and they say, you know, the um, we're the policy setters, and we really need to be armed with the best information to do our jobs. So we need those employees to be working closely with us in order to make some of those changes happen and to give us the best information to, to figure out what to do. Um, and then they also point to the fact that state law does give county commissioners the ability to designate a budget officer. So technically the clerk auditor um, up to this point in Utah County and in, in most counties in Utah, the clerk auditor is also designated sort of implicitly by the county leaders as the budget officer. But state law does give county commissions the ability to choose a different budget officer. And that's exactly what the commission did. So they argue, hey, look, state law kind of gives us this flexibility anyway. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, Amelia uh, Powers Gardner, who is the uh, the clerk auditor, um, said, I, I think this is to you in an interview, she said, this is not an illegal move. It just violates best practices and standards. She also said, it, 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 um, she said, it's kind of like saying, what's the difference between illegal and ethical? Uh, meaning, yeah, the idea being that, sure, this, this is fine to do, but in her eyes, I guess it's, it's not an ethical move. Yeah, she said, you know, like I was talking about earlier, that you know, virtually all governments split up their budgeting into different pieces, and that that's for a very good reason, and that's to sort of create some oversight um, structures so that you know one person is is totally completely in charge of all of this public funding, you know, spending it and collecting it and all of that, and so. Um, she just thinks it's against the principles of good government. And, you know, she also had a variety of other problems with this. I mean, this came out with very little opportunity for input from her office or from the public. Right. She, you know, it was only posted on an agenda barely 24 hours ahead of the meeting. And she said that prior to that, the commissioners had had no communications with her, no communications with the employees that this would affect about what they thought. And it was interesting, the um, county employee that the commissioners 
we're going to choose, you know, did choose and designate as the new budget officer, which would be, you know, in a, a promotion for him. He himself came up and testified during the meeting that, you know, he was flattered by that, but he does not think it's a good idea himself and thinks that, hmm. you know, he should remain an employee of, um, of the clerk auditor's office. And I also want to mention that, um, that Amelia Powers Gardner strongly uh, denies that her office has been withholding information from the commission and says that they can't really find any examples of this um, in their records and, and, you know, have even produced sort of some of the modeling that the commission has requested as they try to um, cut taxes. Um, again, there are others. I mean, you mentioned her. You mentioned the the official himself who was going to you know be moved and and become the the budget official you know uh, with the two commissioners. Um, there's others. Senator Jake Andereg, uh, who is from Utah County, said that this is a power grab. The state auditor uh, said that uh, you know had concerns about this as well. Um, but is it just a done deal? I mean, Bethany, or is that is it? They voted on it. It's done. The change is made. Yeah, I mean they approved it, and um, and it's slated to take effect, I believe, Saturday. So it's a very fast-moving process, and um, you know, uh, with two people on the board, they're both on the same page, and so it was a there was very little debate. <laughs> they're both they both came in kind of know, already knowing what was going to happen, and so the testimony was um, during the meeting was you know pretty much across the board. Uh, in opposition, but they moved ahead regardless. Hmm. Uh, Robert Gerke, news columnist with the Salt Lake Tribune, let's bring you in on this. I mean, um, concerns raised by the state auditor, concerns raised by the the you know the clerk auditor at uh, Utah County, but in the end, you know the only only two votes that had any sway were those of the commissioners. What what do you say about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with the the people who say this is a power grab. And, and by the way, who knew that county budget processes could be so sexy? Um, <laughs> it's a little bit a little bit of intrigue around it. But yeah, it's um, you know the the people who say that there's a reason to distinguish or to to, to separate powers are right because there's a you know that's that's the whole checks and balances system our government's based on. This is this puts a tremendous amount of power in the hands of these uh, two individuals. Um, they control the council and will continue to co- control the council, frankly, even after after the third seat's filled. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, that it's as as Nathan, I mean, you've seen some of the comments that Deidre Henderson called it insane. Uh, you know, Mike Kell called it a power grab. Nathan Ivey, uh, he tweeted over the weekend that Bill Lee is the most, I believe, deceitful uh, person on the, on he's ever encountered. You know, uh, it's it's. There former, are reasons uh, yeah. to set, there are reasons to divide these powers and and have checks and balances, and mm-hmm. you know they're they're undermining that in a pretty brazen fashion, um, and without real accountability. So it's uh, it's a bad move, but there's not much in the, that can be done to stop it at this point. <laughs> um, Bethany, we really have to leave the story behind. I'm sorry. Um, any any huge uh, parts of this that we're missing? Well, I just I just wanted to note. Um, I can't remember if I already mentioned, but Amelia Powers Gardner herself is running is is um, hoping to fill the vacant seat on the commission. So, in theory, this change would give her more power in that new position. She still 
thinks it's a terrible idea. Okay. Um, Bethany Rogers, thank you for your reporting on that. And we have uh, burned through the full hour, and we will now need to uh, turn to our final segment of the show, the underplayed story of the week. And let's bring uh, Leah Larson back into the conversation. Leah, uh, are you ready with a pick for underplayed story of the week? Yes. I'm going to give a shout out to the Uinta Basin Standard in Vernal. They um, reported a story from their own commission doing pretty much the same thing that Utah County just did, um, trying to take power from the clerk auditor with uh, accounting and budget oversight and place it with a an employee that the commission can hire and fire. Okay. Uh, a very similar move up there. And uh, thanks for that pick for Underplayed Story of the Week. Um, check it out in the UNA Standard. Uh, Robert Gerke, your pick for Underplayed Story of the Week. Yeah, I the I think uh, Courtney Tanner had a, a story earlier in the week and another follow up today about the earthquake preparedness and our school buildings. Um, and so I it's it's an issue that's been sort of floating around for a decade, where or more than a decade. You know, we know we're going to have an earthquake. Are our schools ready to are are they structurally prepared for that? And you know, there are people, researchers who say many of them are not, and and could endanger children when that and if that earthquake comes. Okay. Um, and so you just check that out at sltrib.com. Thanks very much, it. Robert. Uh, Bethany, really quick pick for underplayed story of the week. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight a story by Taylor Stevens, my colleague. Um, Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall this week told the Tribune's editorial board that um, just, you know, a couple years after the state's new homeless shelter system opened up, they, she believes there's already a need for an additional shelter. Okay, great pick. Uh, find that at sltrib.com. I'm going to forego my story uh, in the interest of time. Uh, Leah Larson, Bethany Rogers, Robert Gerke, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks. Of course. Uh, you have been listening to Behind the Headlines here on KCPW and Utah Public Radio, featuring reporting from the pages of the Salt Lake Tribune. Join us again next week. Find podcasts at kcpw.org. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Lucky Slice Pizza, handcrafted New York-style pizza available by The Slice and Whole Pie, offering a variety of appetizers, wings, and more. Located in Ogden, Clearfield, and Logan. Information at theluckyslice.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.